9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. It is the summer, and today we have in sunny Northern California... Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. How are you doing, Corey? I am exceedingly well. Thank you, David. Yep, it's because you're in sunny Northern California. Because where I am in rainy, humid New York, you wouldn't be. And in Alexandria, Virginia, where I don't know what the weather is, of course, we have Rosa Brooks. How are you today, Rosa? I'm very well, and I'm being joined here today by my dog. Um, oh, my God. Your dog is so handsome. She's a very, very, very attractive dog and very intelligent and has very thoughtful views on foreign policy, but she doesn't talk that much about them. Well, if she has thoughtful views on foreign policy, there's no place for her in the foreign policy community. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> but she's so... Talk about serene. What is, both regal and serene. That's pretty... That's a pretty good combination. True of the dog as well as Rosa. <laughs> yes. <laughs> People think of me as regal and serene. They say that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just what I was about to say. Um, so look, let's start here. I, I had a, I, w- I was like, you know, Twittering and I Twittered something about Afghanistan because last Thursday, President Biden explicated somewhat his his decision to get all the troops out. And today, the day we're recording this, Monday, it was announced that the, uh, the commanding general in uh, Afghanistan, uh, Scott Miller, had departed. Um, and I immediately got attacked by a, um, a journalist slash troll who was, who, who was saying, you know, uh, well, this is, you know, the Taliban are going to take over and we'll be right back where we started. And, you know, and I thought it's 2021. I mean, I can think of some arguments one could make about how to manage this transition differently. But the circumstances are not the same as they were in 2001. And I was struck and I'm this will be a theme as we talk about different parts of the world that some parts of the foreign policy community, this guy responded with somebody who writes a column on foreign policy, um, are just stuck in a different year. You know, I I noticed this when we were, there were were Cuba stories today or there were Iran stories. They're just stuck in a different, the the reality of the world has changed and they haven't. So um, I'd be interested in your comments and thoughts on both the president and the state of this Afghanistan thing and this idea that somehow the foreign policy community or big chunks of it don't move. And by the way, this is true on the right and the left. You know, people get sort of stuck into a zone. It's like a favorite hairdo. And and they never, they just don't ever want to change their, their policy. Rosa, what does your dog tell you about this? Well, the dog hasn't changed her views much, but only six. Um, so she hasn't had a lot of time to really, you know, 
develop. Wait, wait, youth. wait. That makes her 42. No, no, no. She's only six. She's only just starting first grade. So, okay, but in so dog years, so easy. six times seven, 42? No, in yeah. dog years, the U.S. has been in Afghanistan for 432 years. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, David, I... I I think you're right, obviously. That's not about the foreign policy community. That's just people. You know, none of us are very good at, at changing and none of us are very good at recognizing that the world has changed around us and we hate that and we hate change and so on. And it's always easiest to take the path of least resistance, which is doing what we know how to do and doing what we've been doing. And I think we see that. I, I think it's probably more accurate to say that the foreign policy is no exception uh, to that general rule of, about humans. Um, although, unfortunately, I suppose you could say the stakes are higher here and, you know, matters most in a situation like this. Um, so I do, you know, I do think it, it's just very, very hard. We also, on top of just the general tendency of, of humans as individuals to avoid change, you know, we have these institutions that, that get spun up to do particular things, you know, to manage the embargo against Cuba or to fight the war in Afghanistan or whatever it may be, you know, or to plan drone strikes against terrorism targets, whatever it may be. And then you get, you know, scores, hundreds, thousands of people whose jobs involve getting up in the morning and doing this every day. And it's, it's actually very hard to unwind those institutional structures and those bureaucratic structures. It's a whole lot easier to just keep things going. Um, I don't, you know, in Afghanistan, uh, I mean, I, I get why people are distressed about it. It does seem like, boy, we're, we're withdrawing and look, the Afghan capital is vulnerable and the Afghan government is vulnerable and the Taliban are a bunch of terrible creeps and they do awful things to people and now they're gonna take over. I, I, think, I think that, you know, our problem and I think Biden is, is, is right about this. You know, our problem was that we, we set unrealistic goals 20 years ago, um, unattainable goals, which we unsurprisingly have not attained. And we still somehow have this fantasy in the back of our minds that, you know, if only a little more time, a little more money, a few more troops, a slightly different tweak to our strategy, that we would be able to attain these goals. Um, and we've been telling ourselves that for, you know, every approximately every six, every six months, uh, you know, since uh, since 2020, since 2001, 2001, I'm losing track of my dates now. 20 years ago was 2001. Yes. You know, and we just don't have the ability to do to achieve the goals that we started with. I mean, the best the most we can probably do realistically is to get out, try to be a friend from afar, try to provide advice and humanitarian support and protect our own flanks to the extent necessary. It's easy to say, oh yes, but we should do more. We should bring democracy. We should guarantee human rights. But it's not a matter of wishing. It's a matter of whether we have the ability to do that. And I think the last 20 years have just shown us that we don't. Corey. Uh, so I have a different view on the, uh, perhaps uh, because I am conservative, I have a more, um, appreciative view of unchanging perspectives on foreign policy, because I think the last time new ideas were beneficial in foreign policy is when the United States started trying to be a different kind of country and create a different kind of international order. 
I think Sorry, I, I totally thought you were going to say was during the administration of Grover Cleveland. <laughs> well, to I which, don't know, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams. I was going to reach a little further, Rosa. Uh, to, but, <laughs> Although, but, let's be honest, Grover Cleveland, who declined uh, to move forward with the annexation of Hawaii because he believed it was oppressive to the people of Hawaii, also has annexation. Go Grover. Yeah, I, th I, I thought your response was going to be which administration of Grover Cleveland, but. <laughs> I like both the first and the second Grover Cleveland administration. But thank you, David, for letting me show off. Yes. <laughs> so, well, can, can continue to continue. The so, last time you, so the last I, time there was a good idea in foreign policy was. A good new idea. There yeah. are a lot of good ideas in foreign policy, but a lot of the new ones like um, modern monetary theory that posits that the law of gravity no longer applies to deficit spending. That make me really nervous. And I think um, we ought to be a lot more cautious about advancing them. And I would add in that category, um, uh, the neoconservatives who argued that American power was so dominant in the international order that we ought to be much more assertive and in the using of it to advance our ideas internationally. Um, because I think that's how you get to the strategy we have on Afghanistan. That's how you get uh, to responding to the threat of Iraq by, with the invasion of Iraq rather than with other means of attempting to constrain the threat from Iraq. My own view is that um, after September 11th, the United States, because we were frightened, wildly overreacted to the threat of terrorism, which takes us to Afghanistan, David, because I think one of the things that people are not acknowledging when they compare Afghanistan now to Afghanistan in 2001 is how much better we have gotten at playing defense against the threat of terrorism emergent from outside the United States. We've actually gotten really good at strengthening our defenses and, and playing pretty smart ball against terrorist threats. That will get harder with the withdrawal from Afghanistan because we won't have the rich intelligence network that we have in countries when you have a large American military and diplomatic presence in the country. Um, but I, I am skeptical that we will see a major terrorist threat emergent from Afghanistan, even if the Taliban take over the country again. Um, my own guess as to what will happen is that the Taliban will be able to control the majority of the rural part of the country. And that will be grievous for the people of Afghanistan. And you will have pockets of modernity and of diversity in some of the major cities where security forces will, Afghan security forces will be plentiful enough and brave enough to be able to continue to take the alarming number of casualties 
that Afghan forces have taken in the last 10 years. The amazing thing to me is not that some Afghan troops are surrendering or fleeing. The amazing thing to me is that Afghans are still brave enough to volunteer for their security forces, given the fight that they have been fighting for the last 10 years. Um, you know, we, we are precious about American lives and we should be, but that doesn't mean we should be reckless or insensitive to other people's sacrifices. And that's where I was offended by President Biden's comments on Afghanistan about us having no responsibility. And because I share the judgment, there are places in the world like Mexico, where I would prefer for the United States to expend a lot more attention and resources uh, for, for strengthening our own national security than I would prefer to expend them in Afghanistan. But the callousness with which President Biden talks about Afghanistan, I really think is a moral affront. So I have three things to say to that. And then I will turn it back to Rosa and she can say four things should she so desire. That means Corey will have to then say five. Corey, yes. Well, um, uh, the Connie and escalation ladder. Yeah. <laughs> so the first thing I want to say is we are not reinventing monetary theory. Uh, and as you um, undoubtedly know, Corey, um, uh, for example, uh, the British government in the wake of the Napoleonic Wars. You like this? Like where I'm going with this? Um, uh, uh, ended up with a debt to GDP ratio of over 200%, almost 250%. And the result was the greatest century of British rule ever. In other words, it, it, there are a lot of factors involved in these things. And uh, sometimes having a high debt ratio is fine if you can pay it off and it's not too expensive and you get something for your money. Now, if you waste your money and, or it's too expensive or it's a burden to your people or it leads to inflation as it did in the case of you know, Weimar Germany, well, that's a, that's a different story. Secondly, I love the middle part of what you said because it's true. You know, we've, you know, the, 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 we overreacted to 2001. We overreacted to the, the attacks and to great, to, to, to great, you know, great cost. And, um, and we've gotten much better at this. And so the people who say, well, Afghanistan's going to go right back to being what it was in 2001. That was precisely my problem with this guy's critique, which was, oh, the Taliban will be back and we'll be right back where we were. And the answer is no, we won't. Um, uh, as far as Biden's uh, tenor and tone, I don't think he really uh, was quite as disrespectful as, as, as you mean about the local loss of life. But I do think it, do, it does call to mind one thing, which is also related to some of these other critiques that I saw, which is that the bunch of people are saying, well, no, we have, we have to be there. And I'm like, why? Why does the U.S. have to be involved in these things? I'll give you another example, and then I'll turn it back to Rosa. There is a discussion right now, owing to the horrible shit that happened in Haiti in the past few days, about sending U.S. troops into Haiti. 
And I'm like, what? I was just going to say, David, based on your comments, I'm guessing you don't think we should send U.S. troops to Haiti. I was like, no. You know, and by the way, unbeknownst to, to most of our listeners and most of the world, I was the Haiti economic recovery czar of the Clinton administration uh, back in the job. 1990s. Thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was a splendid job. And, uh, and uh, you know, sp- spent a lot of time in Haiti while we had troops there. Um, and uh uh, you know, I just, th- you know, the, as I have often said here, the United States is the only country in the world when something bad happens someplace, somebody in the White House runs into somebody's office and says, what should we do about this? As opposed to every other country in the world where the response is, should we do something about this? <laughs> you know, and, and it's just, it's a, it's a whole different worldview. Rosa, you may respond to any of that or turn to your dog for further for, for the guidance. Um, yeah. yeah, you know, um, I, I think, Corey, going back to your comments about Biden's speech, uh, Biden's remarks, um, you know, I think of it less as a matter of, of responsibility than, than as capacity and capabilities, you know, that, that it's sort of irrelevant whether or not we have a responsibility. It's, it's irrelevant whether or not we wish things were one way or the other. We wish things were different. If we just don't have the ability to achieve that, then it's meaningless to talk about it. And it just, in fact, is if anything, it's almost sort of worse than nothing. I mean, I think we, I think we agree in substance. Um, I think it's just, it's partly just a question of framing and, and I, I haven't looked carefully at Biden's remarks, so I, I won't make further comment on how he framed it. Um, but, but yeah, and I think that that's, that's, yes. I, I mean, it's impossible with Haiti, Haiti, Cuba, it's impossible not to have that sense of deja vu, David, that you referred to at the very beginning of this discussion. Um, and you know, we have had US troops on and off in Haiti multiple times in the last few decades and with varying promises made to the Haitian people, made to the international community, made to ourselves, promises that we have virtually never been able to live up to. And indeed uh, situations in which arguably we along with some of our, our buddies in the UN and elsewhere, have actually made things arguably a good deal worse than if we had never shown up at all. Um, so, it, you know, it's, it, is, it is a dilemma. You know, I, don't, I, I very much agree with you, David. The U.S. should not automatically be thinking, um, what do we do about this? We should, be, we should be thinking, should we do anything about this? We should also be adding a second question to that. You know, can we do anything about this? And, and what can we do? And how sure are we that the things that we are actually able to do will make things better and not worse? Because I think sometimes we just don't ask ourselves those follow-up questions, you know, that we, we go straight from the, the sense of urgency of, oh my God, you know, something bad has happened. And, and that sense of moral urgency is not inappropriate, right? We would be pretty crappy human beings if we didn't look at pain and suffering and crisis in other places and feel a sense of, of distress and, and, oh my goodness, you know, if I have the power to make this better, shouldn't I do so? You know, that, that's a good feeling, but we, we tend to sort of mistake the desire to bring about positive change with the ability to bring about positive change uh, all too often, or at least we get to that second question about capacity too late, um, you know, too late. And then when the damage is already done or when, when we started off with promises and now retreating then makes things even worse. So 
it's I, I mean, and I'm glad, needless to say, I'm, I'm glad that Biden has not immediately said, goodness me, we will rush in and restore order in Haiti. Uh, I'm glad that the administration is taking a very careful, you know, we have absolutely no intention of doing that. We're just looking at the situation like everybody else. We're happy to send assistance in the form of investigators and so forth uh, at the Haitian government's request. Um, you know, the, this is this is a mess. Um, we don't know what to do about it. We probably should just stay away from it other than that. Corey, you know, one of the other things that strikes me about all this is the reaction that we should send in troops or that only troops are the are the only tool that we've got that could be helpful in a place like Afghanistan or or in Haiti when it's a little bit like our discussion about policing you know sometimes maybe send in the development professional or send use the UN or or I, I, I hesitate to say this word because I know there's a big review underway and it's so often abused but International sanctions can be a tool if everybody gets behind it. Diplomacy can be a tool, et cetera. And in the case of a number of the things, you know, that are going to be ongoing issues with Afghanistan, those tools aren't off the table. Uh, yeah, to start with, so I agree with you, David, that uh, telescoping down to, um, to military force as our preferred way of shaping the world uh, is both um, um, discouragingly uncreative and also a very expensive way to affect change. Um, so uh, I'm very strongly in favor of it being the last resort of American foreign policy, not the first resort of American foreign policy, and of much more involvement rather than much more use of force. I mean, for example, my preferred intervention in Haiti would be for the Biden White House to have called up the head of the Organization of American States yes. and invited her or him to the White House to stand in the Rose Garden and explain to the American people what's actually happening in Haiti and what, you know, the electoral crisis that brought this to bear. And I'd like to hear the head of the FBI explain what the hell's going on that Americans in South Florida had appeared to have had something to do with this. Where are our law enforcement tools in this? I would love to see um, the United States, Canada, and Mexico together sent um, and a team to, um, to Port-au-Prince. We too often uh, wonder why Americans don't trust multilateralism, but then we rush unilaterally into every problem and don't show them that multilateralism is typically the best way to approach a problem. And certainly in Latin America, where the United States has such a long history of militarized foreign policy or uh, backing up American commercial interests rather than helping build strong, stable governance throughout the hemisphere. 
which is the actual solution to all of these problems and collapses. I just wanted to add one thing to, to Corey's last comment um, um, in keeping with, with uh, you know, the theme of we, we exaggerate the potential benefits of what the military can do at the expense of other agencies. We also, um, I think one of the main errors we've made when it comes to building stable governments and supporting that in other countries uh, is that we are much more generous with our military aid and our military training than we are with uh, financial assistance, technical support, training, et cetera, beyond the military. And that's partly a function of where the budgets go here in the United States, you know, and who gets money. Um, and so in many other countries, our, our foreign assistance uh, has taken the form of lots and lots of programs to train partner militaries and build military capacity without similar uh, programs of similar scale in any other institution. So we've kind of built oversized, very capable militaries without the kinds of rule of law institutions or economic development institutions or democratic institutions that would keep that military in check. And that is part of the reason that in, in a number of countries, we, you know, we, when the default becomes the military and it's the only institution that is essentially well-functioning um, because we haven't provided much support for other institutions, you often do end up with a culture of, of coups and uh, military hunters running countries. There's a technical term for what Rosa just so eloquently described. It's the school of the Americas problem. Yeah, yeah. well, that was, yeah. You know, that, we, we, we have a lot of bad history in these places and the school of the Americas is one. Uh, the fact is, you know, I've often said for having had to deal with the OAS a lot, that the OAS building is ideally suited for bar mitzvahs and weddings because so little goes on actually in there. It's a lovely building with a big- It's one of the prettiest buildings in Washington, like yeah, comparable no. to the Library of Congress. It's so beautiful. Yeah, no, it's really beautiful. And that would be a better use of it because very little happens there. And we could strengthen multilateral organ institutions in that regard. But there's actually something also interesting, you know, that's a parallel between Haiti and- Afghanistan, and Rosie used the word culture, you know, a moment ago. One of the problems in a lot of these countries is that they don't have culture of strong institutions themselves. They don't have a lot of strong leaders. And one of the things that we then tend to do when we sort of go in and intervene is realize, well, we can't wash our hands of this place until we pick somebody to go and carry the torch for us. And we have a just atrocious record of picking the wrong people going back, you know, into those uh, literal banana republics we, we were referring to earlier where, where, where it was U.S. banana interests that were driving U.S. foreign policy. It's, uh, I don't, you don't think it's a little sad that our foreign policy is no longer banana driven? Uh, it, it, could, it might help, you know, it might help. But I remember more bananas in our foreign policy. This goes back to your thirst for new ideas. Yeah, well, that's, more that's bananas. didn't Woody Allen make this movie? He did. He did. He made the movie Bananas. I remember, you know, during the Haiti thing, um, sitting in which Haiti thing? The in the there, 90s. There have been so many. The, the, in the 90s. And I remember sitting in the situation room and, the, and and at these lengthy meetings we would have on it and listening to very senior officials, very highly respected people in the United States government, almost weeping about the saintly 
Nelson Mandela-like qualities of Jean-Bertrand Aristide, um, who later turned out to be a murderer and a drug dealer and some other thing. Or, or I sat on a stage once. Could have been. A, in fact, you know, Corey, it was at the OAS. It was an event at the OAS. <laughs> And it was like Danny Glover or Julia Roberts or somebody was sitting there going, yeah. I, the first time I saw Jean-Bertrand Aristide's tiny foot touch the soil as he returned to Haiti. And I was like, holy shit. And I then had to go there, you know, and deal with this guy. And he was bad. Yeah. And, you know, the I government. The term necklacing comes into yeah. American national security because Aristide would put burning tires around the neck of his adversaries. Right. I remember well, the, the, there was absolutely a kind of romanticization of Aristide on the American left as well. Uh, well, but it's because it was right after South Africa and there was this sort of false analogy being made between Mandela and Aristide, oh, you know, and, 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 but, but, you know, in Afghanistan, you know, we're like, well, this government, you know, and we, you know, we're, we're, you know, even Biden was saying all this stuff about it's the responsibility of this government. No, nobody who knows the situation thinks that government's going to be successful. They're, they're, they're nowhere nearly strong enough and they're corrupt and, you know, there's all sorts of nonsense going on there. Uh, this is another problem that we've got that comes up over and over again. And I guarantee you, by the way, if, if Cuba changes tomorrow because of the demonstrations in the street, you know, there's no, there's nobody in Cuba that has any tradition or capability to run that country capably. You know, it's a, it's just, it's another area where, our, you know, our, where, our, where we're really bad. Well, we're not bad. We're not always really bad at it. Um, I can think of some examples when we haven't been half bad at it, um, but, but the challenge is if you genuinely believe that democracy um, defangs threats, then you actually have to navigate the near-term unpleasantness and threat of building democracy. I mean, remember in 2006 when Palestinians were gonna hold elections and it was so obvious that Hamas would be elected. Um, and we were oh, not- shit. Willing, <laughs> yeah, Democracy, we, it sucks. We were not willing to run that risk, even though everybody in the Bush administration acknowledged the fact that making Hamas deal with third grade reading rates and sewage processing plants and right political accountability does actually create boring democratic politics that we love um, but we often don't trust our own um, system of government enough when we are trying to create um, when we are trying to advance democracy elsewhere by the way, Rosa, you know, another place where this kind of stuck in the past approach seems to appertain is Cuba, where, you know, the Marco Rubios and a bunch of people, whatever their history may be, um, still tend to view it, you know, as the evil communist regime that's a threat to the United States. Cuba's not a threat to anyone. Oh, Cuba is a threat to Cuba, Cuba itself. Right. Yeah. Right. I 
I think just the Cubans. It's not, you know, it, it's it's since certainly since the end of the Cold War, Cuba yeah. Cuba's just not been a threat, and it's like. But there's a group of people who will continue to speak. Although, that can I, well, can I go back to the earlier point, which maybe I can bring back around to Cuba um, about Corey's noting that we don't have enough faith in our system of government to feel confident about um, allowing it to exist or uh, in other places in an uncontrolled way. I, I actually, that, that obviously brings up the issue of whether we have any faith in it here either. Um, you know, and the the I think the 2020 election fiasco um, raised this issue very, very starkly for us in the United States. And, you know, polls um, a few months back found that uh, people don't trust in the democratic process. They don't think our democracy is working all that well. We've seen you know, declining public trust in government. And we've also on the on the pro Trumpy right We've also seen a resurgence of rhetoric that we have not seen in this country for a very long time to the effect that, hey, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. Um, and and, that, and that, that comes in response to arguments about, well, look, you know, look who won the popular vote in recent elections and isn't it wrong to have a system in which the over and over uh, you know, several times in the last few decades, the winner of the popular vote has lost the election, that the the far right rejoinder has become, you know, oh, no, 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 we didn't really mean majoritarian democracy, we actually meant something totally different. We're not really a democracy. And you see it in the, the language used by people, people like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, who are no longer referring to us as a democracy, they refer to us as a republic. And, and this does connect to Cuba a little tiny bit um, in the sense that I think that, uh, you know, part of the reason that the Cuban government has been reluctant to open things up and part of the reason that perhaps the Cuba, well, I don't know, this, I think this is actually probably wrong as I'm saying this, I let's scrap that, I take that back. But um, I guess the one thing I would say is that, that we, we have not exactly if, if we don't even have faith in our own democracy right here in the United States of America, it's a little hard to expect anybody else, uh, whether it's foreign governments or, or foreign publics, to have faith in something that is manifestly not working here and that a large number, or certainly not working well, and that a large number of Americans themselves appear to be repudiating. You know who, you know who illustrate your point extremely well, Corey? Yeah. I'll, I'll give you eight names. Okay. Eight. Eight names, John Hansen, Elias Budno, Thomas Mifflin, Richard Henry Lee, John Hancock, Nathaniel Gorham, Arthur St. Clair, and Cyrus Griffin. Why are you stopping at eight? Oh, please, David, please, 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 spool out the long play. <laughs> Those are the first eight presidents of the United States under the Articles of Confederation. So, you know, I mean, you know, we didn't get it right either. And nobody knows who those people were. Um, I mean, they know who John Hancock and Richard Henry Lee were. But John Hansen, the first president of the United States. <laughs> was the president, was there... Was there actually the title president given? It was, it, it was president of the United States in Congress assembled. Okay. 
Which, of course, well, admittedly, to be fair, um, the term president now has a gravitas that it did not have then. And it was deliberately chosen as president, the presiding officer, precisely because it was deemed to be so technocratic and boring, not like your majesty. The origin of the word. No, it was it was a deliberate decision because proposals were made to have the leader of the United States be called things like your majesty or, you know, his imperial potentate and so forth. I can't remember. That's not exactly right. But well, no, but well, they the, offered. The, the president was not at the time a term that was in common use. And it was simply a kind of parliamentary procedure term of the person who's presiding. It's true. Although when John Hansen, our first president, <laughs> whose birthday we should be presiding. celebrating on a regular <laughs> basis, was uh, chosen for the job, George Washington sent him a letter and said, I congratulate your excellency and your appointment to fill the most important seat in the United States. <laughs> so um, it was still thought of as not unimportant, right? I mean, George Washington thought it was important and he was the ninth president of the United States. <laughs> uh, uh, in other words, I was just, I, yes. I was trying to appeal to Corey's sense. But your point his, is well taken. And Corey it, is turning cartwheels across her living room floor, intellectually speaking. Intellectually, yeah, don't hurt, don't hurt yourself. Um, but the point is democracy is hard. And if the only way you can achieve, you know, a, a good democratic outcome overseas is to send in the United States military to get there, we're, we're never, we're never gonna do, you know, it's not gonna work. It's just not the right formulation. Well, I wouldn't say never. Okay. Um, I, 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 because Nazi Germany comes to mind. Uh, but I take your point very much um, that uh, the use of military force uh, only to be a leading tool in our foreign policy when we're genuinely worried about the preservation of our own um, domestic freedoms uh, and we shouldn't where it's sloppy, it's lazy to lead with military force and it very seldom solves the problem. As Edmund Burke uh, himself said in 1775, the use of force alone is but temporary. It may subdue for a moment, but it does not remove the necessity of subduing again. And a nation is not to be governed that must perpetually be conquered. And it was us he was talking about, my friends. It was the rebellious American colonies. And he was objecting to the militarization of British policy. Do you know who else? What, another thing that Edmund Burke said? He said, who's John Hansen? <laughs> <laughs> well played, David. Yeah, well, that's 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 where we end up. And, you know, you think we're mired in the past, but that's how we got to this point of this conversation in the beginning, which is a lot of our foreign policy is, you know, and I kind of think we have to wrap up here, but I'll, I'll, I'll pose this to you, Rosa, and then Corey. But, you know, if you look at Afghanistan and if you look at the United States response to what happened on September 11th, 2001, and you peel away the bad stuff we did, you know, the th the errors we made, that whole extra war, the trillions of dollars, the focusing, the, the not having the clear exit. 
And you look at a couple of things we achieved, like, you know, if we hadn't invaded Iraq and we had focused more on uh, the problem of getting rid of Al Qaeda, maybe we would have even gotten rid of bin Laden a few years earlier. Maybe it wouldn't have taken 10 years, might've taken six or seven. If we, if, if we had been attacked, put together a global coalition to respond to that attack, went in there, I, you know, shut down Al Qaeda and got rid of Osama bin Laden, and that was all we did, everybody would look back at this as a successful undertaking. Perhaps. Reasonable counterfactual, David. Yeah. Yeah, but well, the, the, that's the, the, the point is there were successes within yeah. the studio. No, our, our errors involved errors of overreach. Uh, errors of errors. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we acted, we acted like Americans. Yeah, well, we acted like great powers. At least we didn't act like British football fans. <laughs> well, that's, no. Nor no, did we, we act um, like Attila the Hun. So there is that in our favor. So my favorite diplomatic cable I've ever seen with my own eyes uh, was in uh, 2003. And it was from the embassy in Ulaanbaatar reporting on a conversation they had had with folks in the Mongolian government who were offering their advice to us about the forthcoming invasion of Iraq because they were the last country that had successfully invaded and conquered Iraq. It was fabulous. <laughs> and we, what did they say? They had up. Oh, they they said, "Don't do it, guys." <laughs> oh no! It was more like roll the leader in a carpet and have horses um, stampede oh. towards him, and then play polo with his head or so something like that. But but another counterfactual um, as as Rosa raised. Yeah. Well, no, I thought you were bringing up the the reference to British football fans as a way of getting as an an allusion to the. July 1969 anniversary we've just come up against uh, uh, or, or will come up against in, in the next two days. What is that, David? You've stumped me. Well, it's the 100 Hours War, Corey, also known as the football war, the soccer war between El Salvador and Honduras in 1969. Ah, I do not know it. It's a war that uh, escalated and then there was a, a FIFA World Cup qualifier between El Salvador and Honduras, and it triggered a, a, a conflict between these two countries. Huh. Uh, so it's one you want to look up because it's always, always good to toss it in there. It was challenged. Yeah. Well, and, you know, perhaps that wouldn't have happened if we had had better uh, foreign policy in those parts of the world in the earlier part of the 20th century. I mean, isn't, isn't El Salvador, wasn't there a place where a U.S. Marine tried to install himself as, a, as, the, as the leader in like the 1910 or There's 10? only one of those places? No, yeah. no, but this was like just some guy. It was like some guy who went one of those places? <laughs> Yeah, well, we'll have to, we'll go and have to, we'll have to, we'll have to look that one up. But, uh, um, well, I think we've... Uh, delved into this, certainly from perspectives that people have not heard on MSNBC or CNN or Fox in the past few days. And that's really the reason that we're here. 
Um, we hope everybody is enjoying their summer. We'll be back uh, later this week and in ensuing weeks, as we always are with Corey and Rosa and the rest of our gang who are uh, in transit this week, uh, one way or another, having some, enjoying some uh, uh, other other kinds of locations. My, my older daughter, by the way, is at the Cannes Film Festival and she's sending me pictures every- every you know few hours of you know well here i am on the beach in con and that seems really unfair but at least the world is returning to normal um and people are actually able to go places so that's where we are thank you to Corey. thank you to rosa thank you to rosa's dog what's your dog's name again rosa scout scout what a great dog name i didn't name her but it's it's i would just like to say that's a i still like it it's 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 a good to kill a mockingbird kind of name. It was it was the it was the winner in a long, torturous process in which the children came up with different names and each one would reject every name the other one came up with, and finally a name was drawn from a hat. <laughs> well, our dog briefly was named Snack, for reasons <laughs> that I don't really quite understand. But then we saw his birth certificate or something. And they, they, he had been named at birth Grizzly. Grizzly. And we thought that was a better name. Well, my uh, one of my nephews, uh, a dot who's in military service and stationed in New Mexico, he and his wife adopted a dog from the local um, from the local pound, and resources for veterinary care were evidently scarce at the um, shelter. And so they did not realize until they had adopted the dog that they had actually adopted seven dogs. (laughs) (laughs) That would be a bit of a a blow. So any of those leftover names you all have, please fire (laughs) my way for young Major Shockey. There were eight presidents of the Confederacy Corps. <laughs> you could name them actually after the first eight I mean, presidents too. Of the, of the Articles of Confederation. Fabulous. Okay, yeah, that's a great suggestion. I'll pass it along. Yes. Um, all right. Great. Well, thank you, Corey. Please pass that along. And thank you, Rosa. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Thanks, and if you everybody. want to know more about what you're doing, go to the dsrnetwork.com and look at what we're doing. And if you want, click on membership and sign up and help support lively conversations like this about dog names and all sorts of other things. (laughs) In the meantime, bye-bye. Thanks a lot. Stay healthy.